0: This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Justin Reppe is a senior advisor at Goldstone Financial. Goldstonefinancialgroup.com is the website. Justin, where are you on the scorekeeping of the recession that is coming? Is it going to come? How big? How bad? What are your thoughts today?
1: Uh, Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on today. And, uh, yeah, the the recession definitely is coming. Uh, It's really just a matter of when. Um, You know, a lot of uh, people think it will probably be later this year, potentially, uh, early next year in, in 2024. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as the severity of it goes, uh, it'll you know, likely be pretty mild. Um, it's certainly not going to be uh, something to the tune of like the financial crisis of 2008 or anything like that. Um, so, uh, you know, as we get more economic data uh, that comes out, uh, you know, within uh, this quarter or next quarter, we'll have a better grasp on things of, of exactly when that might be coming.
0: Define a recession again for us. Yep. So a recession is
1: basically a, a slowdown in the GDP, which stands for gross domestic product. So, uh, you know, kind of by the, the textbook definition is, uh, you know, when you have uh, two negative quarters in a row uh, of GDP, which uh, basically just shows that the economy is, is slowing down and, and no longer continuing to grow.
0: But if the economy has sort of been there, it just seems to me like we have this capital R recession. And when we get there, well, now things will be Especially bad, dramatically different. We're, you know if 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 say you don't hit that second quarter of negative GDP, but you're real close, is there really much of a difference between where we are now and where we might be? Um, probably not,
1: honestly. I mean uh, things have been been actually looking pretty darn well so far. I mean, granted, there's, there's been a slowdown in, uh, in earnings and, and things like that. Inflation is, uh, you know, coming down from its, its peak uh, last summer. Uh, so, you know, there's a very, very slight chance that we may, you know, avoid one altogether. But I, I
0: certainly wouldn't count on it. So what's a soft landing then in this case?
1: Uh, well, it'll be just more of a, a mild recession, you know, not, uh, not a significant drop. Uh, in, in the equities markets, for example, uh, you know typically when uh, you are in a, a recessionary period, unemployment is you know uh, rather high, and uh, you know the, the figures came out uh, you know last week that uh, believe it or not, unemployment's actually at over a, a 50-year low. Uh, so you know we've kind of got some conflicting data uh, that's coming out. So there's still a lot to be uh, a lot to be determined.
0: Well, what does the Fed want relative to a recession? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the Fed has
1: basically come out and said that their number one priority is to try and get a handle on inflation. And, you know, they're, they're doing an okay job at that. Uh, you know, inflation has definitely come down. Uh, we'll get uh, the next uh, inflation report actually next Tuesday, uh, the 14th, so we'll have a, a little bit more clarity there. But, um, but that's really their, uh, their, their main goal, and, and they're kind of between a rock and a hard place uh, because uh, when, they, when they raise interest rates like they've been doing it, Really puts you know downward pressure on on the market and uh, and businesses in general, and so uh, that can you know in turn kind of lead us into a recession. Uh, but it's one of the ways that they also help you know uh, to fight the inflation problem that we have. Right, but
0: they is it fair to say that if we get a recession, it will be in part because of the Fed's policies. Uh,
1: it. Yeah, but it would be a definitely a contributing factor. Uh, you know, naturally the the market goes through ebbs and flows. Uh, you know, the, really the the last recession we had was back in 2020 during the you know initial COVID shutdown, and that was kind of a more of an artificial you know manufactured right. recession at that, that period of time.
0: What's your advice to investors right now?
1: Uh, well, it's it's really just to have a plan. I mean, you you can't uh, you know go forward and into you know retirement and and just you know, hope that things are going to be okay. As long as you have a structured plan in place to, to weather the storm and, and really have a game plan going forward, then you should be perfectly fine. And really that's one of the things that, that we do at Goldstone Financial Group is is we make sure that our clients have a plan for the, the what-ifs, you know, and, and the uncertainties. And so as long as you have that uh, plan in place, it doesn't really matter what's going on out in the economy or the markets all that much uh, because we know what to expect and, and we're prepared for it.
0: Well, last year was one of those what-ifs, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly,
1: certainly it was.
0: I mean, one of those scenarios where you say, <laughs> um, "I'm going to have to be patient," or "I'm going to have to anticipate that the market may just be catastrophic for my retirement assets," and and there, and here we are today, having lived through the last twelve months. Anyway, uh, people have taken a beating.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, typically when you see a drop in the stock market, uh, the bond market usually holds its own. Uh, but that certainly was not the case for 2022. You know, when you look at uh, kind of the average 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, uh, you know, that that makeup uh, actually went through, you know, one of the, the worst periods in, in decades as far as a return goes. So, um, you know, there's very few places that were safe uh, back in, in 2022. Um, but, you know, the, so far this year, the, the market has been doing uh, pretty darn good. Uh, you know, we had a uh, very, very good January uh, to, to start off the year. And so we don't think it's all doom and gloom. This, this year should be a decent year in the market.
0: Justin Repi, Senior Advisor at Goldstone Financial Group, goldstonefinancialgroup.com. Nice to talk to you today, Justin. Thanks for your thoughts. Yes, thanks for having me. Joan Salzman from CNET regularly joins us. Last we spoke, I think it was even outside the show, Joan, we talked about Netflix password sharing fees. You have more news about that today, right?
2: Yeah,
3: there's an update. Um, when we last talked, we discussed how there were some there was some information out there about how this rollout would happen. What's happened is it's actually started. Netflix just yesterday launched their official password sharing, what they call paid account sharing initiative in four countries, not the U.S. yet, but our neighbors in Canada are among those first four in addition to New Zealand, Portugal, and Spain. And probably the most important thing about this initial rollout is that, A, it's sort of the first wave. There's gonna be more countries coming online in the next few months and few quarters, including the U.S. And B, the prices that Netflix is charging are higher than what they charged when they were doing initial tests of this plan in Latin America.
0: How much? I mean, what would it be equivalent to you and me here?
3: Yeah, so when it was being tested in, Amer- in three Latin American countries, the fees averaged out to be about a quarter of the price for a standard plan in each country, because every country has different different prices. They sort of averaged out to be about a quarter of the price of a standard account. Now, this first wave, it's more like 43 to 48% of a standard account. In Canada, you know, the market that is most closely like the U.S., um, has the highest of all worth. Basically, the, the price is about half of what a standard account would be. In the U.S., just based on that, that pattern in the U.S., the fee would be about 750 if they followed that same practice.
0: 750 for the um, subsidiary account. That is the sharing account right. that would be attached to your account. And you told us how that would work. I don't understand, though. Um, a lot of people are upset about it and say, well, then I'll cancel my Netflix. But the people that would be upset and would want to cancel Netflix are the ones that aren't paying for Netflix. It doesn't affect me as an account holder. I'm already paying Netflix. They're not going to raise my traditional fee, are they? My standard fee, are they?
3: Except it will affect you if you're the main account holder because your extra member, that's not the one that's going to be paying the fee. It's the main account that has to pay the fee. So if you want to share your account with somebody who lives outside your house. Right. They're not; Those other people aren't paying for it. You have to pay your subscription plus you have to pay for the other person.
0: I understand. Well, I okay, I get that. But it would still seem to me then I'll just tell them, well, then go buy your own. Um, yeah, that's true. Know, I mean, well, really, I mean, if I like Netflix and I'm paying for it, the fact that it costs me more now to have you on the account doesn't change the fact that I want Netflix and I'm paying for it. So I think I'll just cut my kids off or my friends off and uh, keep the account. I mean, do you think, what will people do? Will they cancel Netflix, or will they uh, do what I'm suggesting?
3: You know, I, I think that that's a really interesting question, that we don't have much precedence to, to guess what what's going to happen, because Netflix for so long has been, you know, publicly lenient about password sharing. The, the Netflix Twitter account once tweeted that love is sharing a password. Founder, CEO, founder and CEO, well, now formerly CEO, but still chairman, Reed Hastings, in um, 2016, he said he loves it when people, the CEO and founder of the company said, I love it when people share. And so I think it's this about space and the fact that it's going to feel like a sudden change in the um, sort of, Customer relationship that Netflix has built itself upon, where it's great to share. To all of a sudden, you have to now pay 50% more if you want to be sharing. I think it's going to take catch people off guard. It might not have to do with the money. It might not have to do with like telling people you have to get you have to stop sharing with me. I think it has to do with that customer relationship.
0: It seems like two weeks ago, we'd never heard of ChatGBT and this enhanced AI. Now we're all about it, and now we're so used to it, we're already bored with how inaccurate it is, or how um, uh, ordinary some of the information is that it returns, but I know it's in its infancy, and in fact, Google has their own version of it, and Microsoft does too, right?
2: Yeah.
3: Two, two big bits of news for AI chatbots in, in that realm. Microsoft is um, rolling out the same technology that powers ChatGPT. They've partnered and invested in that um, that company called OpenAI to integrate that technology into its Bing search engine, um, also its Microsoft Edge browser. And those are precursors to the idea of integrating it also into things like Microsoft Outlook, Word, PowerPoint, so the prospect is being able to use this technology, for example, like in your Word document, having it there to just to just tell Word, hey, Word, quickly summarize, make an executive summary bullet point list of this entire document that I just wrote for me. The interesting thing about this, especially with Bing, is that this is going to be the first chance that little, like, poor little David against Goliath, yeah. Google, yeah. of Microsoft and Bing. They've never been able to, like, punch above their weight against Google. This might actually give them a chance to do that.
0: What percentage of the searches are Google? I'll bet it's 90 percent.
3: It's astronomical, yeah. it's I, I don't know what the stats are in front of me, but it's, like, in the upper 90s, if I recall correctly from last night. It's I shouldn't say that. It's very, very big.
0: <laughs> well, so what an investment then. What a risk, I guess, for these other companies. But that's where the future is. They can't sit on the sidelines, right?
3: Yeah. And, you know, Google is now the one that's being sort of in this uncomfortable, unusual position of being perceived as being the one sitting on the sidelines. So Google sort of was the, pre- they, they invented the, the basic uh, technique that has led to these sort of AI chatbots. But um, when Google just this Monday to sort of catch up on the popularity and and discourse around ChatGPT, Google released Bard, which is its sort of own version of ChatGPT. But even as it unveiled it, it was an underwhelming announcement. And then it was this Bard system was caught in the marketing promotional materials that they had generated for it. it they they displayed the they displayed Bard giving inaccurate information, like <laughs> in the materials, oh, no. in the, like video oh, in the no. demo video. Yeah. And you know, people can argue semantics about, well, it, it wasn't technically wrong, but it, it is technically wrong. If you think of it this way, it doesn't matter. The flub Google shares, Google lost a hundred billion dollars in market value because really? people, yes. Yeah. Just the other day, once this, the realization that like it was an underwhelming launch, or unveiling, plus then when this sort of error that was part of the marketing launch for it was sort of exposed and and seen and everyone could see it, that's when shares dropped something like 10%, 9%. Wow.
0: Somebody is in trouble at that company today. (laughs) Joan Salzman writes for CNET. Read her stuff at CNET.com. Join it. so, Joan, it's always fun to talk to you. Thanks for your thoughts today. Great to talk to you, too. Ali Marati is a reporter of consumer products, food and restaurants, and retail at CranesChicagoBusiness.com. Ali, welcome back. How are you today?
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Chick-fil-A is coming to O'Hare. That's a real headline. That's actually big news, isn't it?
4: It is. It's the first Chick-fil-A at O'Hare, and it's coming to the updated Terminal 5 this summer.
0: I want to get over there. I've, I guess eventually I'll be at Terminal 5 anyway, but there's been so much money talking anticipation for Terminal 5. Have you been over there yourself?
3: You know, I was
4: there last summer when I flew internationally and everything was still sort of under construction, so I haven't been there since we've seen, you know, this official upgrade being completed. And it's not completed yet, sorry, a portion of it's completed, but Um, Yeah, there's a lot of new stuff coming. There's going to be a protein bar and kitchen there as well. as sort of one of these evolved by Hudson stores that's going to sell Chicago products like Catherine Ann Confections also.
0: Mm. And Chick-fil-A is going to be there. Is Chick-fil-A in the other um, gates, uh, the other, what do you call them, terminals at O'Hare?
4: No, this is going to be the first one at O'Hare.
0: That's weird. I mean, you would think they would, if I had to pick an area, I would be in one through four rather than five, but... They're going to go there. huh?
4: Yeah. And, you know, this is um, the way that they're operating the restaurants in Terminal 5 is a little different. Um, Most of the restaurants at O'Hare are operated by HMS Toast, which is, you know, this third party company. Um, that runs them and they use, you know, all of the restaurant's recipes, et cetera. But sometimes they're getting the food from different suppliers and the restaurant would, all that kind of stuff. So um, with the Protein Bar, that's actually going to be a corporate location. So Protein Bar and Kitchen is going to operate it. And then with the Chick-fil-A, it's going to be operated by Hyde Park Hospitality and its partner, Philip Concessions. So just again, it's sort of a deviation from other restaurants at O'Hare. And I know that the city has talked a lot about how they're trying to bring in more diverse operators there, um, particularly with this upgrade to Terminal 5.
0: Steve Alexander, you're wondering if Chick-fil-A at the airport is going to be closed on Sundays. Why do you ask that?
2: Well, it's closed. All other uh, locations are closed on Sundays. Oh, really? And But air traffic doesn't stop on Sundays. I'm just curious whether they make an exception there if it's going to be the same thing.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, it is going to be closed on Sundays. I asked that as
0: well. <laughs> uh, is that uh, because of the beliefs of the ownership? I I don't eat a Chick-fil-A. I guess I didn't know that.
4: Yeah, as far as I know, yes. Um, it's a Georgia-based chain. And yeah, they, they just uphold the being closed on Sundays.
0: McDonald's is opening up how many locations this year?
4: They're saying 1,900 new locations. That's around the world. Net will be about 1,500 locations. And then if we're looking just in the U.S., um, there's going to be 400 coming to basically this region that that includes the U.S., Australia, and a handful of European countries. And that's pretty big news for McDonald's because it hasn't grown its restaurant count in the U.S. since 2014. So it's been eight years.
0: Well, you did what I maybe was just about to ask you to start doing, put that in some context for us. It seemed like A McDonald's franchise used to be the can't-miss cash cow for an owner. If you had a McDonald's, you were set, kind of like maybe a Starbucks had been in the last 20 years. Um, Are are McDonald's restaurants that successful? I'm a little surprised, to be honest with you, that the brand is growing that much.
4: Yeah, so it's been an interesting few years for all restaurants, right? You know, with the pandemic and everything and McDonald's is in, like, markets all around the world, obviously, they're still dealing, for example, with a lot of COVID closures in China. Hmm. Um, So, you know, it hasn't been this for sure thing like it has in the past. The growth hasn't been, um, you know, they haven't been adding to their store count like they have previously. But one of the reasons for that is because, You know, going back maybe to 2015, they started really investing in modernizing their stores. So when you think about kind of, you know, the self-order kiosks and even rolling out their loyalty apps so they can get digital orders, they've been really focused on that. Um, And that was part of their growth plan, like getting to know their customer better through that loyalty program so that essentially they can drive up sales. So this is sort of the next phase of that, right? Like they feel like they're on a good path with that. So let's now accelerate our growth they haven't given a lot of details. They have announced that they're entering into this new phase of growth where they do accelerate their store openings. Um, And this was really just the first few details they gave about that plan.
0: What's the news from Westtown Bakery?
4: Yeah. So Westtown Bakery is um, teaming up with um, a new dispensary that's open and opening in suburban Wheeling, or sorry, it already opened in Wheeling. Um, It's going to be part cafe and bakery and part marijuana shop. So it'll be interesting to see.
0: Bakery and marijuana. Are they going to put the pot in the brownies or are these (laughs) separate things?
4: They're not going to do that. These are two separate things. So it's going to be basically like you walk in and then, you know, over here is your cafe and bakery. You can sit down, you can grab a drink. You know, they have a liquor license there. Um, And then over here is the window where they will sell the marijuana products from And, um, you know, I used to cover when I was at the Tribune, I covered the cannabis industry all throughout the legalization here in Illinois of recreational marijuana. And this was a fun story to do because it it was almost like a past life regression there for me. But this is really sort of, you know, we're going to get these new this new generation of marijuana dispensaries here in Illinois. So far, since 2020, when pot became legal recreationally, it's been largely the same operators. And just last summer, the state finally gave out some licenses for some new dispensary owners to come in. And I think as those new dispensaries come online, we will start seeing, you know, things like this happening that differentiate one pot shop from the next one. Because right now, the growers are still all the same, too. You know, so it's a lot of the same products in each store. And I think, you know, when I talked to the Westtown Bakery owner, they were telling me, we want to have something besides just the weed, something that's going to get people to come in here. If people don't want to buy weed that day, that's fine. They can still get their daily coffee, and we'll be front of line for them.
0: I still think they should put the pot in the brownies. That's been done before, you know.
4: (laughs) It has been done before, but uh, they don't have a license to do that there.
0: (laughs) Oh, really? um, You know,
4: it's all very highly regulated, and that would be venturing into the illegal side of things.
0: What's going to replace Tavern on Rush?
4: So it's going to not be a steakhouse. I think that's the big headline there. Um, It's going to be a restaurant called The Bellevue, which is named basically for the cross street at which it sits on Rush Street there in the Gold Coast. It's going to be serving contemporary American cuisine. And, yeah, you know, they're still going to have their big patio, but they're going in a decidedly different direction than Tavern on Rush did.
0: Maybe the price point will be a little easier for some folks, huh?
4: I'm not sure about that. You know, their um, menu isn't set yet. They haven't released details around who the chefs are going to be, that sort of thing. Um, but it is still going to be. It's the, the landlords of the building. They've owned it for about 25 years. They're the ones running this new restaurant. So I would imagine that you know property taxes are still the same, and they're still going to have to be getting those uh, profits that they would have gotten that tavern on Rush um, to pay their bills somehow.
0: Yeah. Uh, Just very quickly, uh, what happened there? Did Tavern on Rush want to leave when the lease expired, or did they not want them as a tenant? They wanted to run it themselves.
4: Yeah, the landlords told me that basically, you know, that building was a little bit outdated. Tavern on Rush had opened in the early 1990s, and the building needed renovations. And the landlords were basically like, you know, if we had to spend all this money, we decided to just do it ourselves. Um, One of the landlords invested in other restaurants, too, so he felt that he had the know-how to do that.
0: We will see. Okay, Uh, very interesting stuff. Ali Maradi is the uh, reporter over at uh, Crane Chicago Business on food, restaurants, stuff like that. Ali, let's visit again. Thanks for your thoughts today. Let's do it. Thank you. This is the Wind Trust Business Lunch on WG, and the business news continues with Steve Grazanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wind Trust Business Minute, sharing
5: Chicago's business news of the day. Skyrocketing insurance in Illinois has prompted a new push in Springfield to give the Illinois Department of Insurance the power to reject auto insurance rate hikes. Democratic State Representative Will Gazardi of Chicago introduced the bill, which has the backing of more than a dozen consumer and community groups. The bill would also bar insurers from setting rates based on things like a policyholder's credit score. Illinois is one of just two states where regulators have no authority over insurance rate changes. Wyoming is the other. Cranes reports the 10 largest auto insurers in Illinois raised rates by more than a billion dollars last year. The insurers blame rising claims costs. Deerfield-based Baxter International is the latest Chicago-area company to announce job cuts. It plans to reduce its global headcount by about 5%. The cuts come as the company launches a restructuring plan. As many as 3,000 employees will be cut worldwide starting in the second quarter. Baxter lost $2.4 billion in 2022 at the end of last year and employed about 60,000 people worldwide. I'm Steve Gritanich,
0: and that's your Trust Business Minute. The business of food and Steve Alexander.
2: Thank you. And I love stories like the one we're about to hear about how iconic Chicago businesses got their start. And we'll get to that after I tell you. We're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. Okay, here's the story. A Chicago tavern located in Little Village decided to try something different.
6: Instead of putting popcorn or pretzels out on the bar, they put out square-cut pieces of pizza.
2: Yay, said everybody.
6: Customers started asking for it, so they decided they'd start charging for it.
2: And one day...
6: There was a customer who used to come in from Wisconsin, and he would ask for his pizzas to be half baked. And my grandfather to asked him one day, "You know, why do you want your pizzas half baked?" And he said, "Well, then I take them home and I put them in my freezer."
2: Which led to the tavern owner starting a frozen pizza business.
6: In the 1970s is really when it took off.
2: And today, what began at that little tavern is a huge nationwide business.
6: We make over 100,000 pizzas a day. Wow! So in a year, we're hitting 25 million.
2: If you've been around Chicago very long, you probably know the business I'm talking about his home run in and Gina Bolger is marketing director and part of the fourth generation running the company.
6: I would love to see my great-grandma and my grandfather's face today and even my father's face you know with what we've grown to be I think they'd be very proud and most importantly just proud of our efforts of giving back to the community and just really being there for Chicago and Chicagoans through, through thick and through thin.
2: More than 750 employees, a big plant in Woodridge. There are nine locations. The original is still there.
6: We recently remodeled it. and We kept the historic uh, Tiffany lamps and the dogs on the wall we have a mural that's painted with dogs on the wall so we kept everything that really made that restaurant what it is
2: and all these years later the home run-ins square cut and thin crust remain
6: that's our jam so we're
2: sticking with it and about the name
6: the restaurant is across the street from a local baseball park and all of the home runs from the kids neighborhood games would go over the street and crash into the building And the name, yeah, and that's
2: how the name started. I love that story. From the farm to your belly, not only is today National Pizza Day, it is National Bagel and Lox Day. That's the business of food on 720 WGN.
0: You may have heard, I think Lisa was talking the other day about a bill in Springfield that would crack down on auto insurers using your credit score as a way to calculate what you will end up paying for your auto insurance. I kind of agree with the gang that I think it should be predicated on your driving history and the vehicle you're driving rather than your credit score. But lo and behold, that's weighing in. Let's uh, talk a little bit about things related to that with Kate DeVenter, an analyst at Bankrate.com. And you all have written about the different premiums and rates state by state. Is that right, Kate?
7: We have, yes. We looked at all 50 states and the top 25 metro areas in the country by population.
0: I suppose the um, more densely populated areas, as Chicago is always going to be more expensive than a Keokuk because we have more vehicles and it's just more congested, right?
7: That's exactly right. When there are more vehicles on the road, there's a higher chance for accidents. And in an area like Chicago, cost of living is probably higher than it is in some of those rural areas, which means that claims are going to cost more. So those two factors together are naturally going to increase the cost of car
0: insurance. And while you've listed them by state, it's really uh, those premiums are based on city by city, zip codes almost, right?
7: Yeah, most states do go into zip code specific. So while we do have the average rate for each metro area, each area specifically within that metro is also likely to vary just based on claim statistics and claim prices within that specific zip
0: code. So how does Illinois do? How does Chicago do?
7: So Chicago actually is, is a bit on both ends. Chicago had the fourth highest increase between the metro areas that we looked at. So rates went up between 2022 and 2023, about 14 uh, percent, which is significant. It's slightly more than the national average, which was about 13.72 percent year over year. But that being said, even though Chicago did have quite a big increase, it is still one of the lower metro areas when compared to the average annual income. Chicago drivers spend just about 2.5% of their average annual income on full coverage car insurance, which makes it the 10th least expensive metro in the country.
0: Wow. Well, I'm glad to hear that, but I'm surprised that a family will spend 2.5% of their household income on just auto insurance alone, huh?
7: Yeah, it, it is fairly significant. And while Chicago is, is the 10th least right now with that 14% increase, it is trending in the wrong direction, the direction that no one wants it to go. So it will be interesting to see this report next year where Chicago falls on that list.
0: I'm just looking at some of the metros or some of the states. The average annual premium in Florida is $3,183. Wow. In Illinois, it's 1,800, so significantly less. And less still is Iowa, 1,300, Detroit, 2,700. Well, I said Detroit, that's Michigan, but I suppose some of that's predicated on Detroit being Detroit.
7: Yeah, it can be. When we're looking at the average of states, especially the way that we pulled our our premiums, we did weight by population because theoretically in those areas of the state that have more residents, there are more car insurance policies. So that allowed us to get a truer sense of the average premium in a given state. So Detroit being another big metro, you know, maybe has higher cost of living, higher crash statistics, things like that. It's also going to, to bump up the rate for Michigan as a whole.
0: One last question, then. What is driving these rate changes?
7: It's really hard to point the finger at any specific factor. Likely it's a combination of a lot of different factors coming together. But really the driver we're seeing across the nation is inflation claims are costing more and that causes insurers to raise their rates to make sure that they have sufficient money to pay out the claims at those higher
0: costs. So when I go to the garage to get my car fixed, he's going to pass along the cost of more expensive supplies, materials, labor, all that.
7: Yep, exactly. And and when those claims are more expensive and the insurance companies know that that their share of that claim is going to cost more, they have to pass along that increase to insureds to make sure that the company stays solvent and is able to still pay out those claims.
0: You can read the full list and the story that goes with it at bankrate.com. It's very interesting. Kate DeVenter is an analyst there. Kate, nice to talk to you today. Thanks for your help. Absolutely.
3: Thanks for having me.